If you have your Bible this morning, let's turn to Romans chapter 13. I, I'll tell you, when I, the music here should be preparatory to hearing God's Word. It certainly is a necessary part of worship. I, the last several Sundays, um, when I'm done singing, and it may not be because I have proper singing technique, I'll let our choir director correct me on that one. I used to sing a lot and had technique pretty good. But even using proper technique when I'm singing, my voice is sore when I'm done singing the hymns. And that's because you guys are just like almost shouting. Uh, and I think that's awesome. Um, so praise the Lord. I, you guys are such an encouragement. You instruct me so much in the Word of God and song, and it's uh, tremendously helpful to me. So thank you for that. I appreciate that. And, and um, may it increase more and more, right? Mr. Knapp, good to see you, friend. I'm glad that you're with us. If you were here last week and I missed you, I am sorry, but uh, good to see you, my friend. Uh, Romans chapter 13, if you need a Bible to follow along with, just slip up your hand and our ushers will be glad to give you one uh, to follow along with for sure. Uh, I just want to encourage you folks in light of our immediate context in Romans 13 today that Jesus is building his church uh, and he's doing it right through you folks. Uh, and that's what he had intended to do all along. Uh, faithful disciple makers in a local area, reaching their Jerusalem for Christ as a result of that planting churches and then networking those churches to take the gospel to, to foreign lands. That's simple. That's the plan. Jesus is building his church through you. And I'm incredibly encouraged by that. Um, and I look forward to how he's going to continue to do that uh, until the Lord Jesus comes. Uh, the head of the church is coming. The chief cornerstone of the church is imminently coming. And uh, we want to be a body that's prepared to see him. And certainly one significant aspect of a body being prepared to see him, were they willing to, to take his gospel uh, to the world, starting with their own area and I praise the Lord that Jesus is building his church. You know, Jesus was building his church to the church in Rome. Paul writes to a church that's actually quite healthy. We've mentioned that before. Uh, these people, along with the apostle Paul in Romans 16, what did 116, chapter 1 and verse 16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I don't know if you noticed this about the book of Romans in your past studies, but Paul concludes in chapter 16 of the book, in the first few chapters, mentioning some 24 names of people that had come to know Christ through his influence or through the influence of the church of Rome. Somewhere along the line, the Roman church actually became aware of what it meant to not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. What I find really interesting in that grouping of 24 people is that those 24 people could fit very, very nicely into the divisions of Great Commission living that Paul outlines for us at the end of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13. We're not going to preach those names now. That's coming up towards the end of the year. But if you look at those group of names on your own before the end of the year, you'll find out that there were former, former persecutors of the church in that group who are now 
born again. There are, there, are, there are current and former civil heads of Roman state in that group of names who are faithfully serving the Lord in the church of Rome. And then there are uh, people who are basic everyday employees, hard workers, blue collar people, businessmen in that church that were representative of the kind of people that most of us spend most of our weeks with. And what do we find at the end of chapter number 12? That love has a great commission, doesn't it? Love has a commission. And we're taught how to love those who persecute us, right? Why? Who's listed in Romans 16? Former persecutors. We're taught in the beginning part of chapter 13 that we looked at last week that we're supposed to respond well to civil government, civil authority. I want you to think about why. Again, remember how he starts the book in 116 and how he finishes in the first few verses of chapter 16. Why is he going through this with the people of the Church of Rome? Well, because there are now in the Church of Rome people who are actively or formally involved in civil government. Many church historians believe the very treasurer of the current emperor of Rome is a member of the church at Rome. The treasurer of an empire. And again, seated with them worshiping in this part of the first century, in this part of the world, are people that they spend their time with in the community who once did not know Christ, but because of their disciple-making influence, they do now. And their friends who are without Christ are now their friends in Christ, and they gather together to worship to continue to reach the community for Christ. What do we have here in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 10? We have this third level of Great Commission love being described. So often, not just one phrase, but multiple phrases in this short passage of Scripture are extracted out of the immediate context for other contextual purposes. Therefore, we lose really the depth of the meaning of why they're used within this context. So for some of us in the auditorium that have been studying the Word of God for a long time, it, it will be hardest for you. It will be hardest for you to rein your hearts and minds back into the understanding of the immediate context, the chapter context, and the whole book context that I've just tried to give you in a relationship to how love lives the Great Commission. How love lives the Great Commission, and particularly for our purposes this morning, with those or among those who are our friends in the community, our legitimate friends in the community who are yet to know Christ. So with that being said, let's look at these verses and read them together. And let's think practically about how Jesus would love to continue to build his church through you loving responsibly in the community among those you spend the most time with. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. 
For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. I think it's necessary to point out the obvious here. All right. You need to underline how many times the word love is mentioned in just these three small verses. I think it's obvious for us to be reminded that this whole context on love began in chapter 9, which you see chapter 12 and verse 9. If you'll go back with me one page, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to that which is good. That's where our discussion on love and compassion began. By the time we got down again to verses 17 to 21, we talked about love having a great commission purpose. And we've already reviewed that, so we'll continue on. But love here, as described in verses 8 through 10, in detail, at least with four commands of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, is teaching us how to practically live out the first line of Romans chapter 12 and verse 9 before those who are yet to know Christ that we keep company with. How do we live a holy love? A love that abhors that which is evil and clings to that which is good. And how does the Lord use that testimony among our peers that are yet to know Christ to influence them to come to know Christ? I think it's important for us to uh, notice also the word neighbor in this text. It's mentioned several times, verse 8 and verse 9 and verse 10. We're going to understand here that the word neighbor, or the title neighbor, if you will, is synonymous with the phrase or the reciprocal pronoun in verse number 8, one another. Neighbor and one another are synonymous with one another. And what's unique about their usage in this context is that usually when we see the reciprocal pronoun one another, it's in relationship to other people who know Christ, but in this context, it's in relationship to those people who don't know Christ that we spend a lot of time with. And then you'll notice here, once in verse number 8 and then once in verse number 10, that there's an opportunity that we have when we love well to fulfill the law. Fulfill the law. We'll discuss what that means as we discuss, as we conclude. And then at the end of verse 10, it is here, love is the fulfillment of the law. So as we begin this morning, I'd like to just give you three simple points that outline this small context. And first of all, I'd like to point out to you the foundation, the foundation of our love for others who need Christ, the foundation. Secondly, we're going to discuss together the focus. What's the focus of our love for others who need Christ? Okay. And then finally, the fulfillment, the foundation, the focus and the fulfillment 
of our love for others who have yet to know Christ. As we've already mentioned here in relationship to the foundation, the form of the main word for love here in the Bible is mentioned four times. And as we've always mentioned again that this love, this holy love that's going to be described in the focus is first mentioned in chapter 12 and verse 9. And we learned from chapter 12 and verse 9 to chapter 13 and verse 8 that love is holy. Love is holy the way it acts around God's people. Love is relational as it seeks to grow God's people reciprocally in Christ-likeness. Love is passionate in the way it serves the Lord and the way it perseveres as it serves in the local church. And, and love is aware in a multifaceted way that we discussed in earlier sermons. Love lives very aware of its opportunities inside the body of Christ. But then we moved on to love expressed outside the family of God to those who persecute us, to those who are ruling over us in civic authority, and today, those who we spend the most time with that live right with us or around us. We have received the perfect love of God in Jesus Christ. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, but God freely commended his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That free offer of God's love is the Lord Jesus Christ and his payment for our sin on the cross. When we trust the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, we get God's perfect love in him because we are imperfect lovers. We need an alien kind of love, a love that's not of this world. The love of God, which is God's, who is God's son, to be in us. So that when God loves us now, he loves his son in us because there's nothing lovable about us. God loves us perfectly and wholly in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why John could say in 1 John 4, perfect love casts out fear of coming judgment. Because we know the love of God in Christ, we don't fear condemnation. We don't fear the judgment of a literal hell for rejecting the love of Christ. Perfect love throws that fear away. It throws that fear away. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 how love, this perfect love, compels us and constrains us to, to serve and to worship with one another with integrity. Love casts out the fear of judgment. Love compels us to worship and to serve with integrity among one another. And, and now we find out that love persuades us to live like Christ before those who do not know him personally. This is the foundation. This is the foundation of how we approach lost people. I was reading a book recently, oh, sometime last year, a book by Jim Stump, and I've given some of you this this uh, study that he did, the results of the studies did, 95% of American evangelicals have never had the opportunity to 
see someone, one of their friends or family members come to know Christ as their Savior. Now, when we talk about family members, we're talking about people outside that don't live in our homes. So 95% of us, particularly, maybe, have never seen someone that is a friend of ours, an acquaintance of ours, come to know Christ as their Savior. Well, the Lord's going to build his church through the people in his church, then his people need to be doing disciple-making work. And if we're not seeing people come to know Christ and disciple-making work, then this text is probably going to tell us why we're not. There's something that the foundation of our love here automatically assumes. It assumes that we are going to be around lost people. And we're going to be around lost people intentionally so. We're not going to be recluse from them. We're not going to be sheltered from them. We're not going to be fortressed from them. All right? And this is what the love of God compels us to do. As a matter of fact, we really can't even fulfill the law of Christ, which we're going to conclude with, unless we're intentionally and premeditatively around lost people. This is the foundation. And the focus is very clear here as well. The focus is an adherence to the moral code of God. We have before us, that we've already read, a small portion of that code that's mentioned here, but this partial mention of the code is meant to be representative of the whole moral code of God. And this perfect love that we have in Jesus Christ, because we're imperfect, this love obligates us to attend to each aspect of God's moral code and to live the highest ethic of that code before those who are around us that have yet to come to know Christ. So what is the first aspect of this moral code? It says here, Owe nothing to anyone. Now, a lot of people will just stop there and focus on that phrase, and grammatically, that's kind of grammatically dishonest. It literally says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Except to love one another. And that loving one another is connected with the phrases that follow that lead us into the pinpoint exclusive focus of our love. So we'll go broadly here with the intention of this first phrase just being a simple springboard into the focus of the text, which is love's expression or love's focus here among those who are lost. The grammar of the first line of verse 8 literally says this, let no debt remain outstanding. Let no debt remain outstanding. And that's pretty simple, right? All of us are going to incur debt in our life. And what is the Bible basically saying here? Make sure you pay it off. That's not rocket science. The text does not say live without debt. The text does not say debt is wrong. The text just literally says what? If you get it, pay it off. But it's a springboard into a comparison analogy, if you will. If you have practical debt, which we all have or have had, right? Make sure you pay it off. But remember, folks, the chief focus of this text, which is what? 
There is a debt of love you will never be able to repay. And that is a debt of evangelistic love lived out among those who are our friends who are yet to know Christ. This is our focus. We are to love the yet to know Christ, one another's in our context. How do we do this? Well, it's outlined here quite simply. We're helped by the use of the word neighbor as connected with these uh, one another's in our lives to tell us exclusively who they are and among whom we're to, to live the focus of this love. So what's a neighbor? Hold your finger here and go to Luke chapter 10. And let's let Jesus define for us who our neighbor is. Luke chapter 10. Let's look at verse 27. Luke records that Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God, or Moses said, with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, a teacher of the law, a bright guy, said to him, or Jesus said to him in response to this guy that asked the question, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And then the Lord Jesus gives us the parable of the Good Samaritan. To tell us exactly who our neighbor is. And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him, and went away, leaving him dead. And by chance, a priest was going down to the road, And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Notice the priest there in verse 31. Likewise, a Levite, and you can underline the word Levite here. We've got two Jewish representatives mentioned in this parable. When he came to that place and saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, and pouring oil and wine on them. And he put, put him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, when I return, I will repay. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy towards him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Now go back to Romans 13 with me, if you will. The principle of the good Samaritan, it's multi-principled, but the idea is here, there is no one that is outside the family of God that is ever to be exclusively an enemy, especially when we live 
and the natural rhythms of life with them, even though they don't know Christ on a regular basis. Jesus said it's always the will of God, regardless of socioeconomic or ethnic barriers, to minister to needy people. And in that context, if we had time to go back and explain the context of Luke, that's a gospel context. For Paul here, who I'm pretty confident is in his mind as he writes these verses, reflecting on Luke chapter 10, he looks at the people that we live most with during the course of our week, who are yet to come to know Christ as needy spiritual people. And again, there's no socioeconomic or racial barrier that should be established in our lives to keep us from reaching those people around us. So the focus here is on the neighbor, the spiritually needy people right in our proximity of our daily living throughout the week. And he puts very clear emphasis here on the character of the focus of this moral love. Um, And we're going to identify what these specific uh, commands are and tell you why. Um, And I think it'll make sense to you here in just a little bit. So, you're going to fulfill the law, and how are we going to do this? By loving our neighbor. And how are we going to do this? It's explained in verse 9. So the first two words of verse 9 for this is going to clarify for us the focus of the moral um, character of this love. He says here, for this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, and you shall not covet. Well, in any cursory reading of the moral code of God, any one of us could say, well, I've never murdered anybody. I've never committed adultery. I've never done the big sins. But then intermixed with the, you know, right, the, the, the things we qualify as the big sins are also the thou shalt not covet. And if anyone in this room says they've never committed that sin, I'm just going to back up while the bolt of lightning comes. And, <laughs> right? The moral code of God and its description pretty much lays all of us bare before a holy God as sinners, all right? And what did Jesus say? If you violated in one area of the law, you're guilty of how many? You're guilty of all of them, all right? So let's not be like the religious people, right, of our world that says, I don't do that, I don't do that, I don't do this. Uh, you're still a sinner, and let me tell you what you have done, or let's let the Word of God tell us what we have done. And, and he's going to explain here, for this, you shall not commit adultery. And what we're going to notice about each one of these four particular moral codes of God, that each one is not just an offense before God, but it also influences our relationship with mankind. Okay. You shall not commit adultery. For adultery is both God against God and others. It is a sin in any culture that can and will permanently destroy gospel credibility with lost people. And if you've been a Christian long enough, you're probably aware of someone personally or within the church of Jesus Christ that has fallen away from walking with God and has committed this sin, and they have permanently lost their gospel influence with the one another's in their lives. Again, not the saved people in their lives, 
but they've permanently damaged their relationship, their gospel relationship with the unsaved close friends in their lives in some respect, in some regard. Again, Paul's talking to a healthy church here in Rome, and I feel like I'm talking to a spiritually healthy group of people here this morning. So I think this is not so much of a command to stop. It's a warning not to start. All right, God's building his church through you, so let him continue. And one of the ways that we express love towards our friends who are yet to know Christ is to live morally pure lives. Make no mistake, folks, to be sexually impure or to be immoral is the pledge of allegiance of our culture. There used to be a time, even in the 70s and 80s that I grew up in, if you were the guy or the girl that was sleeping around the high school, that you were kind of like... Now, if you're a virgin, you're the one that's kind of like... There's a current TV program. I don't watch it, but I read a synopsis of it. And the whole purpose of the program was to bring vitriol and persecution and accusation against the only person on the show that had never slept with anybody. That's the culture in which we live. So, if we're going to remain pure in a biblical fashion, let me, let me tell you what that tells your culture. It's kind of like, you're able to do what? You've not done what since you came to know Christ? That's nuts. There's no way anyone can do that. And you're right. And you say, you know what? You're, you're, you're right. <laughs> There's no way I can't. There's this wonderful man I met long ago named Jesus Christ. And when I owned him, right, he gave me the ability to abstain from that kind of lifestyle. Because on my own, no way. No way. As a matter of fact, if I'd have never met this wonderful guy in my life, this divine person, uh, let me tell you the way I would be living right now, and let me tell you where I would be living right now, and I could tell every one of you exactly where and how. Because I know me. Okay? To live a morally pure life, my friends, is countercultural to not just this culture, but even the Roman culture of the first century. That was... But at its pinnacle, completely hedonistic, and its intent for giving up, getting up out of bed every day. And Paul says here, the focus of our holy love is to lead morally pure lives. Okay. I was always taught, I went to school when computers were first becoming a thing. So in 1986, I walked into my first computer science course. And for those of you who were born any time after 2000, don't check out, but this is going to sound funny to you, right? So we had the old IBM PC, right, with spring-loaded keys, right? And I can't really explain the sound. There is no onopoetic word, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> Uh, onomatopoeia word that describes the, the, the clinking of those keys, right? 
Um, you guys don't even remember. You might know what a jump drive is, but now you're all cloud-based. So, you know, before the cloud, there was jump drives, and before the jump drive, there was a, a two-and-a-half-inch, three-inch floppy. And before the two-and-a-half to three-inch floppy, there was a five-inch floppy disk, right? And, uh, and, and I'm not trying to be nostalgic here. I'm just trying to say the, the first lecture we had in computer science course, we were, the first lecture was this. If you put garbage into a computer, you're going to get garbage out of that computer. What became to be known as all kinds of viruses that people use to hack people and so forth, garbage in, garbage out. That was my first lecture in computer science course back in the caveman era of computing or computing. Okay? Garbage in, garbage out. I got to thinking about this in relationship to living out this particular aspect of God's holy moral code. What's the best way that a believer can ensure themselves not to live in a way that defiles God's moral code? Is to guard ourselves about what we're seeing, what we're hearing, and where we're going. You put garbage in, right? Your flesh cannot handle but to live garbage out. So as you live this way before those who don't know the Lord that you spend most of your time with, they're going to say, you've never done what? And you don't listen to what? And you don't watch what? And you don't go where? That's nuts. And you say, yeah, I am nuts. I don't know what else to tell you, right? God changed me and I'm really happy, but you know, I'm not gonna view that. I'm not gonna listen to that. I'm not gonna drink that. I'm not gonna go to that. And it's only because I love Jesus. And by the way, I really love you too. Well, you're going to still love me if you don't go with me there, watch this with me, and drink this with me, and listen to this? Are you still going to love me? Well, of course I'm going to love you. Amen. You're my friend. You're my friend. But omnipotent, something other than me changed me. And I can't really explain that, except it was in the form of a person, Jesus Christ. Remember, we're talking about a gospel context here. What is a chief way to arrest the attention of one of your friends that doesn't know Jesus Christ? Live morally pure before them, and it will puzzle them. It will conflict them. They won't understand why. But because they know you love them, and you're an investment and made a personal investment in them, you're going to be the person they're probably going to sit down with and be most comfortable with the explanation as to why you don't. Remember, 95% of Christian evangelicals have never won someone to Christ. You want to know why? Because we've isolated ourselves, we've fortressed ourselves, we've pulled ourselves away from those who actually need him, all, all because we say we're not going to be involved in an immoral lifestyle so we're not going to be around those who are. And that's antithetical to what Jesus prayed for you in John 17. Don't pull away. Be there, but be sanctified by thy word because thy word is true. Amen. God's word, especially shepherded in an environment like this, is your divine protective uh, mechanism, if you will to help you live holy in, in relationship to moral purity in this culture. And these people have to see something in order to ask you something about why you don't do something. 
They got to know. And the only way they're going to know is if they're around you and they know you like them. Even though you may not live like them. What else does he say? You shall not murder. Well, Jesus qualified that. None of us may have never have needlessly or premeditatively taken another life. But Jesus always enhanced adultery, didn't he? Right? Jesus said if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. And Jesus said you may not have shed someone's blood, but if you hate someone, it's likened unto the murder of that someone. And you think about that in relationship to our own culture again, long before someone is going to murder somebody uh, or committing adultery with someone, they're probably lusting after that somebody. And long before murder takes place in our culture, there are probably some hate involved. There's haters in our culture, right? And that hate undealt with will lead to the taking of someone's life. So Paul's writing to a healthy church. I'm speaking to a healthy church. And all we're saying is to you this morning, as tremendous disciple makers, keep yourself from even hating somebody. Obviously, John said in 1 John 4, if a man says that he loves God and hates his brother, the truth is not in him. So, but again, we're not talking about love among each other. We're talking about loving the outside. And the Bible's very clear. There's not one unsaved soul that a believer's licensed to hate. Not one. Not one president not one presidential candidate, not one political figure, not one principal, not one teacher, not one boss, not one coworker, not one neighbor, no one are you licensed to hate. And we're not. Keep going. Great job. But our world's full of haters, isn't it? So someone who's not going to hate is going to again stand as a beacon of countercultural light to a world on social media or wherever that's just used to hating on people. That's the point here. Don't be a murderer. Don't steal. The Lord saved me from a horrific life of theft. I don't don't even want to know how bad my theft would have been, but I was stealing at, at two, three, four years old. Chronically stealing. And that, I heard a Sunday school story about, you know, thieves will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, and that bothered me. And Jesus died for little thieves, little toddler kleptomaniacs. (laughs) I've told you the stories and all that I was able to confiscate without my mother's knowledge, just sitting in a grocery cart while she shopped weekly. Uh, I grew fast for a reason. I was... All right. James Montgomery Boyce has this paragraph on this particular holy aspect of love. He says, there are many ways we can steal. We steal from an employee when we do not give him our best work of which we are capable of. We steal if we overextend our coffee breaks or leave work early. We steal if we waste, um, if we waste products unnecessarily with which we are working to try to create 
We steal if, as businessmen, we charge too much for our products or try to make a killing in a lucrative field. We steal if we sell an inferior product pretending that it's better than it really is. We steal when we mismanage another person's money or if we borrow but do not repay what we have borrowed. If we love people in a gospel way, we will do none of these things, Boyce says. He just kind of pieces down practical ways that people steal. But again, the reason why I state that is to tell you that Boyce is really explicating in detail what theft is in anyone's daily life, but I want to tell you Rome didn't have this problem. I don't believe Grace Church of Mentor has this problem. All we're saying is keep your guard up so that your disciple-making uh, thriving can continue. Is theft a problem in our culture? Is hating a problem in our culture? Is sexual impurity a problem in our culture? The answer is yes, yes, and yes. So those who by the power of God in Christ Jesus have a pattern away from that kind of living, you stand as light. And really gospel opportunity for those who know that you love them that are yet to know Christ to come to know him. It says here, you shall not covet. You shall not covet. Covetousness is really the height of materialism. This is the last of the Ten Commandments, if you will, and clearly addresses our personal, attendant, our personal tendency to be allured by our consumer-driven society, which teaches us to covet what? Everything. <laughs> covet everything. Right. I think out of all four of these, and I'll speak for probably myself, this is not just the final commandment, but the one that most can practically distract us from loving well before lost people. Think about that. Consumerism and materialism can be a distraction to the Christian way of life, can it? If we're living for the American dream, right, and for what old-fashioned people used to call the almighty dollar, right, if we're living for that, we don't have much time left in our life to even think about loving or winning the lost. Materialism, and if we're going to be consumer-driven, we're going to heap a lot of things to ourselves that we're going to have to work more to pay for. Right? So we're buying more, we're working more, we're paying more, and there's very little time left to even be around people to explain who Jesus Christ is. So I think within the context here, this particular admonition fits well. Thou shalt not covet. Okay. As we conclude this morning, the phrase in verse number eight and the phrase in verse number 10 is clear. If you're going to love this way, you will be fulfilling something. And it is the law of God. You'll be fulfilling the law of God. Some of you, your minds might be racing to Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Where the Bible teaches us how to fulfill the law of Christ. But that context is within how we're loving each other as saved people. So it doesn't really fit here with Romans 13, 8 to 10. What does it mean to fulfill the law? Obviously, within the immediate context, the Apostle Paul's talking about the moral code of Moses, which he specifically represents represent, or talks about four particular commands in the Decalogue of that moral code. Right? 
How do you fulfill this law? How do you fill it up? Well, I'll go back to a couple opening comments to summarize it, especially for some of you who are newer to Christ and you haven't known him very much. Jesus was a perfect law keeper. Jesus never sinned. Amen? Amen. All right? He was more consistent than that light, for sure. (laughs) Jesus never sinned. Jesus never sinned. He lived in an Old Testament Mosaic context. So that meant he was a perfect law keeper. He died the perfect law-keeping lamb of God for your and my sin and the sin of the whole world. Why? Because we are imperfect law-keepers. We just mentioned four aspects of this moral code, and just in a brief mention of four, all of us are indicted as guilty, imperfect law-keepers, just by probably one, if not all four. How do we fulfill the law? You have to personally invite right, the perfect law keeper into your heart. You have to say, I am an imperfect law keeper. I am a sinner. That's been seen here. And I need perfection that's not my own to be my own so that when God looks at me, he sees his son's perfection and not my imperfection. And you'll know, believer, that you've truly trusted the perfect law keeper as your savior by how you live that moral code among those who know you best who are yet to know that perfect law keeper. I hope that wasn't confusing. When we live by God's grace that moral code among those who cannot live perfectly that moral code, and they're consumed by immorality, they're consumed by theft, they're consumed by debt, they're consumed by all these things that consumerism brings, and so forth. When you live as best you can that moral code before them, right? you're fulfilling the purpose of the law. And what was the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law was to prove to men that they're incapable of keeping it. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2 that the law is our schoolmaster unto Christ. In other words, it was given to prove to us we can't keep it, so we'd look to the one who did. And bow our knee in incapable imperfection and say, Lord Jesus, forgive me. You come in me and help me live this moral code. It's you living through me, not me living through you. And this is what we do, my friends, on a daily basis, right? This is love without hypocrisy that you abhor evil and cling to that which is good. And while we're doing this in this context, people are watching. But make sure they're watching because they know you love them. Did you hear what I said? Make sure they're watching because you know, they know you love them. Make sure they're not watching just because you've made yourself some kind of religious, cold-hearted spectacle. 
Because all these people that are watching, if they know that you love them, they'll come to the point where they realize they're needy people. And then we have the opportunity to share Jesus with them who will fill that void in their life and help them by his grace to live his life through them. I grew up in a stripe of Christianity and we were haters of unsaved people. I don't care how you want to stripe it up, we did not like them. Shame on us. Shame on us. The very people that were going to put Jesus on the cross before his triumphal entry, he looked up on him in the city of Jerusalem, and what did he do? He wept. And the same people that were going to cry, Hosanna, 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 Lord of hosts, were the same people that were going to drive the nails through his hands and his feet and pierce his side and thrust a crown of thorns on his head and, and, and mutilate him beyond recognition. And he was going to do that for their sin. Jesus wept for them. The thief on the cross, the murderer on the cross. Jesus could have spit on him and said, you've seen my example all my life, and yet you still continue to live a murderous lifestyle. But Jesus didn't do that, did he? Come unto me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest unto your soul. No religious leader in all of history could do that or can offer that except Jesus Christ. Amen. That's it. That's it. So don't walk around, and you're not, but I'm encouraging you because I think there's still maybe a handful of folks in our church that are a lot more old-fashioned than they are biblical. God doesn't use haters as evangelizers. Have pity. Pray for Live that moral code graciously as you relate and beg God to allow you to be a good Samaritan to a needy soul. And then we'll continue to understand truly what it means to be healthy disciple makers in any culture. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you for the simplicity of your word. We thank you for the strength of the church in the city of Rome at this time. And I thank you, Lord, for the sweet and wonderful saints that you've given us here who do everything they can by your grace, not of their own strength, to live the moral code of Jesus Christ in their lives as, as really a testimony that only he can help us with. And Lord, I beg you that you would just help us to help needy people in our community who don't have that strength because they don't have Jesus. Help, them, help, help us to help them see that that strength is not in us. It's not in a church. It's not in a pastor. It's not in a priest. It's not in any human being except the God-man, Jesus Christ. May our light so shine before men that they may see our good works, our holy love, our adherence to this moral code with divine help, that they may come and ask us, how in the world, what in the world are you doing? Because I need help. And in that moment, help us to humbly and graciously represent our Savior who came to die for that hurting, needy heart. 
and invite them to life in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.